Welcome to A Life Invested, a podcast dedicated to helping you create the lifestyle of your dreams by investing in people, assets, and yourself. I'm your host, Roger Comstock. All right, my friends, welcome. Welcome back to A Life Invested. It's so good to have you here. I feel just so grateful to have this incredible individual with me named Reed Maltby. Um, he's accomplished tons and tons of cool stuff in his life. Um, I'm going to go over a little bit about him right now. Leveraging two master's degrees, sports psychology and early childhood development, and 30 years of professional coaching experience, Coach Reed Maltby has dedicated his life to creating the best environments for performers to achieve excellence on and off the sports field. He's implemented training programs with a variety of sports organizations that include the Gaelic Games Association, Sport New Zealand, U.S. Sailing, Soccer Canada, and the PGA of Canada. As a former Division I athlete, Coach Reed is no stranger to the impact of language. In eliciting peak performance, he shared his experience with the power of words in his 2015 TEDx talk, Echoes Beyond the Game, and has contributed to dozens of media outlets, such as the Huffington Post, NBC Sports Engine, ESPN Radio, and Sirius XMFC. A seasoned public speaker and motivator, Reed has also published multiple coaching resources, including a contribution to the textbook, Youth Sports in America, and co-authoring the Positive Discipline Tools for Coaches. This is amazing. So many incredible things this guy's done. The essential work he has done through keynotes, workshops, webinars, and courses in the sports space has supported thousands of athletes and coaches on five continents. You want to uh, learn more about this guy, and in order to do that, you're going to go to his website, coachreed.com, or fullspartan.com. So Reed, welcome. Welcome to the show, man. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for the lovely introduction too. I just, you know, luck preparation meets opportunity. I was just in the right place at the right time a few times. <laughs> That's so cool, man. I love it. Tell, tell the listeners what you mean by that. Well, you know, that was something my dad always said when I was younger. It might've been a Zig Ziglar comment, but he would always say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So he says, you always have to prepare son and, and, and luck doesn't just happen. It's you're ready for it. And when you're ready, when, when it does happen, when you have those those moments of synergy, you've got to take advantage of them. And that's what happened with me. Uh, you know, the tool cards with Jane Nelson, I, I went to one of her positive discipline workshops and got lucky enough that she looked at my Ted talk and she said, Hey, let's, let's get together and do tool cards. So I was just in the right place at the right time. And I was ready to do the tool cards. I was prepared and I took full advantage of the opportunity and ended up getting an amazing mentor in the process. We've been friends ever since. And She's just been a fantastic influence on my life. So luck right there. <laughs> that's so, that's so cool. I think uh, in life too, the harder we work, the luckier we end up getting too. Um, it's a, it's a cool thing to be able to see kind of what happens when you put your mind to something, you focus on a particular outcome and then you start moving towards it. Miracles start to happen. Tell, tell us um, a little bit about what you focused on primarily when it comes to the impact of language um, in, in performance. Sure. You hit the nail on the head right there when you're talking about the concept of like manifesting, like when we put our mind to things, when we use language, that's very certain. And we use very specific language. We're creating imagery in our brain. We're creating a visualization and the brain cannot distinguish completely between what's an image and what's really occurring. You know, the brain sees it, the brain sees it. So you're prepping your brain and your body for success. You're prepping it for whatever that is. Jean-Claude Keeley proved that they did imagery work on him. And what they noticed was when they were do, going, walking through these very specific visualizations of downhill skiing, his leg muscles were innervating as if they were prepping to do physical activity. So they're actually seeing real physical activity in the muscles when we just do visualization. So language, if language has that power to elicit responses in the muscles, then the right kind of language has the power to help us perform at peak. Whereas just like software, 
bad language, malware, would actually cause chokes and the system would cause the software to malfunction, which would cause the hardware to malfunction, our body being the hardware. And so for me, I started looking at language and saying, well, what are those words that we can use that we know prepare the brain and the body to succeed? We know moves us along, creates certainty so that we have a visual image of our success or visual image of, an, of a positive outcome versus those words that might be perilous that will cause those choke points, cause us to have that spiral that you see where the the greatest athletes in the world can have those moments where they just choke and spiral and people are going, he's one of the greatest golfers ever. Why is he, why is he blowing a 10 here at Augusta on the 16th? Because his brain had just a, a blip and that language spiraled out. So that was really my focus with, with the book and with what I do a lot of is, is how we fix our language and start to create those positive patterns in our brain. I love this. Um, I'm a huge, huge advocate of um, subconscious programming and the idea of being able to uh, utilize our brains a lot like software to be able to accomplish whatever we put um, our minds to, right? And so maybe we talk about this for just a little bit. Uh, yeah, they did some. They've, they've they've done some remarkable studies about um, how just thinking about something, the idea of kind of like shadow boxing, actually is almost identical to actually performing a particular act. They studied some basketball players shooting free throws, and they had individuals that were shooting them. Um, in reality, actually, actually shooting free throws and then other ones that just thought about it. And the degree of improvement was almost identical between the two groups, just by thinking about the act of shooting a basketball. And so, uh, can you help listeners understand why that might be the case and how that works, um, at a, uh, subconscious level? Sure. And, and I know the research study you're alluding to, I, I actually studied it in my master's thesis on imagery. So the, the one with the basketballs. So if you think about, and it's a loose translation. It's a loose analogy because our brain really isn't like a supercomputer. But if you think about the brain like a computer and you think about the body being the actual hardware, the brain is where the software resides and hardware only works as good as the software. So if your computer has efficient hardware and there aren't too, too many processes running and you don't have any malware, your computer runs well. So if you think about the brain in that, that aspect, when you're doing visual imagery, what you're doing is you're planting in there very specific code in the brain to allow the brain the fire. And if you've read Daniel Coyle's work, you know that skill resides in the brain. People think about skill, they think about the physicality, the outcome, the result, but that's just the physical outcome of what was programmed in the brain. Skill actually resides in the brain at the neuron level. So when you have your synapses firing, the neurons are firing, that connection between two synapses where it fires, that's the skill happening. So as you intentionally practice a skill physically, like he, like Daniel talks about in his book, The Talent Code, you're building the myelin sheath around like a protective layer, like imagine exposed wires and then you're wrapping them with, you know, the, the electric tape. You're building a very thick layer of insulation around it. What happens is it allows those neurons to fire more efficiently and more effectively regularly. So you're paving a skill pathway in the brain. When we're young, you see a lot of neural pruning, clipping. A lot of kids, we have billions and billions of neurons and, and young athletes, especially those neurons are being pruned back by the brain if they're not being used. So if you learn a skill, like if you grow up in a two language household and at a young age, you're speaking it, you're, you're, you're creating neurological firing in the brain. You're creating codes for both of those languages. As you stop using it, your brain says, let's get rid of those neurons. And so you might lose a certain language and say, oh, I could speak it when I was younger, but I've lost that language. It's because the brain pruned back that skill. So when you're doing visual visualization, not just the physical aspect, but if you have visualization that's rich in imagery, it evokes emotions, it evokes 
visceral senses. Like you, you're talking to somebody about a soccer field and you, you can smell the grass clippings. You can feel the heat on your, uh, the sun on your face. You can hear the thwack of the ball when you're playing. If you're creating those kinds of images in somebody's head, you're creating a movie for the brain. You're, you're actually create, making it real for the brain. And the brain is now making those neural connections and now you strike the ball. And so your brain makes a neural correction connection of striking the ball and it's starting to build a deeper, uh, it's a thicker myelin sheath and a much more efficient, um, a synapse connection. Now you still need the physical practice. So the free throw shooters, they, they still needed to go out and do some physical practice, but they, they use, like you said, there was already improvement in the brain because the muscles can't distinguish. If the brain's firing as if it's hitting a soccer ball, then the muscles are being sent these messages by the brain, even if there is no soccer ball, because you've had this very vivid imagery. And so that's where the language plays a huge role in helping us improve skill because skill happens in the brain. It's code. Oh, thank you so much for sharing, Reed. I think this stuff is absolutely fascinating. So maybe give the listeners a couple examples of some positive, like linguistic, uh, just words like they could be using in their in their lives to create positive outcomes, right? With whatever it is that they're working towards, in comparison to something that might create kind of adverse effects. Sure. So the biggest one, the flip, is can't. That's one that we all need to re re. We need to reframe and rewire the word can't in our brains. Can't is a stopper. It's a stop sign. When somebody says, I can't, your brain now has that visualization of not being able to do something of, or not wanting to think it through, or you're not physically ready. So can't is an excuse for us not to continue on. It's, it's a dead stop. If you shift that to a more positive, like yet, like Carol Dweck talks about the power of yet you're, you're creating that opportunity to look hopefully to the future. One of my favorite power words, my wife uses it, used it with me years ago. And it's why we're sitting here. And I, I say it all the time. What if? Somebody can't visualize the future. If your language is uncertain in your head, then your outcomes are uncertain. If you don't know what you can accomplish, if you don't know what tomorrow looks like, it's hard to visualize it. But if you switch it and say, what if, what if you, like my wife said to me, what if you could be a coach full-time? What if this, this passion of yours could be something you could make a live? What would that look like? And now I can start to build a visual of what would it look like if I coach full time? How would I make my money? How would I, how would I spend my time? Who would I work with? What, what message would I be sending out there? And now I'm that phrase. What if gets my brain going down a pathway of very certain outcomes and thinking about them. And as I'm visualizing them, that's an opportunity for me to make them come real because I have something I can see and attach my dreams to, and start to build backwards now, very specific steps in that process. Well, if I were to coach full-time, I need to do this. And then I need to do a, I need to get a degree. And then I need to go and do this, or I need to go this. I need to study this. I need to work with this group. And so I'm game planning. I'm goal setting. What if is an extremely powerful word. Can't is a negative one. Don't is another one. And the problem with don't is two things. One, when we tell people don't, we're actually telling them to do something. Bob Rotella talks about in his book, uh, golf is not a game of perfect. If you and I are standing on a tee box and there's water to the right and you're a right-handed swinger and you're a, you're a slicer. So you expect it to go right. And as we're standing there in the fairways to the left, and I say to you, don't hit it in the water. Bob says, you know, your brain filters out the word don't and all your brain hears, Oh, hit it in the water. Okay. I'll do that. And so many times we'll see somebody have that negative message and then have a negative outcome. John Smoltz said it during the world series playoffs or the playoffs this year in the past year in the MLB. They asked him about a pitcher in a certain situation. He said, well, the last thing you want to say to this pitcher is don't throw it over the plate because that's exactly where he'll put it. And then you're pitching against, I think it was Manny Machado, you're pitch, pitching against the home run hitter. So you have to be careful. That's in his wheelhouse. His point, the brain doesn't understand don't. We can't visualize don't. If we say don't run, especially to younger athletes, all they can visualize is the run. Their brain can't 
they can't think of what don't means. So saying don't do something is actually telling them to do it. The other side of the don't word as a negative word is by saying, I don't know that, or I don't know how to do that, or don't do this is we're again, shutting down brain processes. We're not giving our brain an opportunity to perform, which means we're not giving our body an opportunity to perform because we've put up a stop sign. It's amazing how all of this stuff uh, works because I'm a, I'm a big golfer. Um, I love to golf and it is so much of a mental game. I mean, uh, you can, you can have uh, a straight left arm, you're bending your knee, you're, you're doing all the things that you need to be rotating around your back. But if your mind's not there in the right place, it, the ball's going to go, you don't know where the ball is going to go. Right. And so really, really interesting to be able to understand some of these principles when you're coaching some of these athletes or helping people understand why this is important. Um, how much of their success that this athlete experiences, would you attribute to the way that they're thinking in comparison to just the, the physical, um, kind of, uh, actions they're taking. And what I mean by that would be like, somebody may, uh, know exactly what they should do in a particular baseball swing or golf swing. But if their thoughts are in alignment with that particular action, have you found that that has an adverse effect in the outcome that they experience? Yes. Thoughts and emotions. If, if an athlete's not in a good emotional space, they tend to underperform as well. And that's because so the emotions, I'm sorry. It's so interesting, isn't it? It really is. And it's so in the younger athletes it's even more prevalent because they're still learning the skills. So they're still clipping and pruning neurons and, and still building up these synaptic connections. So for them, it's even more important that they have very positive language, very positive uh, outcomes, very positive experiences. For instance, it's the coaches that yell a lot of times will say, well, I get results or this, or that's how we build them up. And I always say, yeah, that's great. But understanding the human brain is to know that in a high stress threatening situation, like being yelled at, being screamed at by somebody larger than you, because coaches are usually bigger than the young athletes, what you're doing is you're activating the fear system in the brain, the amygdala. And then they can't, they can't process anything logically because the frontal lobe isn't doing the work. The amygdala is, and all it's thinking is, should I hit this guy? Should I run from this guy? Or should I just freeze and hope he doesn't notice me standing here? You know, that's that fight, flight, or freeze response. And so that's where emotions and our thought processes and athletes really take hold of us. So we've got to create these emotionally um, stable environments where they can manage their emotions, where they can manage the emotions of the situation. And then we've got to pepper in there that positive language because the positive language helps lend towards that, the proper skill output for them. You see it in pro athletes at a different level, the difference between, and they always say it between first and second place at the Olympics or in the pros or, you know, at, at world-class events is usually a matter of milliseconds or inches. And it's usually the inches between the ears, because that's the difference between Michael Phelps and the person who touched second in a swimming event was that they, the skill was there for both of them. They both had trained to perfection. They had, they had, uh, they, they had grooved the skills to the point where it was almost automatic. What it came down to is how they emotionally approached the event and what language they were using with themselves during that race. And that's, that's where it really takes hold. Yeah. This, this work that you're doing, I, I could talk to you for hours. I'm so grateful you're on the show because I am a, I'm a huge proponent of these ideas that you are helping people understand. And, uh, it's it's not just hocus pocus, right? Like this is data backed research that shows that the way that we speak to ourselves and the way that we think about a particular objective will indefinitely define how it all plays out, right? Which is super super interesting. So I want to talk to you for a little bit. So I'm I'm a Christian, 
Um, but I also love studying Buddhism for a lot of reasons. I think uh, Jesus, in a lot of ways, uh, followed a lot of kind of like Buddhist ideas, right? Uh, being present um, and uh, not worrying so much about what could happen, all of the things in the future, right? And so this this idea, what I love so much about Buddhism is they focus a lot on regulating emotions and being present in the moment. Uh, and so sometimes like a golfer may step up to the tee box and put his ball on the tee and think, oh no, like what if I miss this? And you know, what if I shank it or slice it? And this could be really bad. And if he does everything, because it's those little tiny micro movements that will affect where that ball goes. And if his mind isn't where it needs to be, he's going to do self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's a, he'll hit it bad. And so I would love to hear from, from you, what kind of advice you would give to somebody to help them regulate their emotional state. Cause I'm, I'm a, I love what you shared. I think from the outside, somebody could have everything that the world could offer and be living in a complete hell and based off of the way that their their mind is working right they could be trapped there they could have all the money in the world all of the fame whatever it is people think is important but if their mind isn't working right they can be miserable if 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 enough is never enough and they always feel like they need more right they could be miserable if if somebody on the other hand like victor frankel has nothing everything stripped away from him his wife, a letter from his wife, his clothes, food, all this stuff, regardless of the miserable state he was in as far as his external situation, internally, he was he was happy. He had purpose. And so how do you coach people to be able to think correctly and manage their state? So a lot of, a lot of times it's creating a, an automaticity or... So there's two things. One, it's creating that automatic reaction. So in the high-performance athletes, you know, we, we want to layer in those positive thoughts. We want layer positive mindset. We want them to have the proper language, like cueing and trigger language that allows them to perform skills very well. If you're really in the cueing language, Nick Winkleman's got a book out. I think it's called the, the language of coaching or something. And he talks about the proper way to cue a movement pattern. So if you cue it in the proper way, it's much easier for the person to perform the skill. So think about those, think about triggers and reset buttons. We want athletes to have those in their brain. But when you get it down to certain skills, we always say, well, get out of your own head, get out of your own head. And what we're saying to them is not to, they don't need to think anymore. They, they've fought and they've trained it through, but in those moments of high stress, they want to make sure that extra thoughts aren't coming in. Like you were saying that, that last second, what if I shank this? What if I screw up in front of the 15 people standing in the starters box, watching me tee off? What if I, you know, what if I hit it into the water? We want to eliminate those. So you get to a point where you have to create automaticity in the skills that we've trained the skills and we've trained the brain well enough that when they step up into those moments, it's the clear the mechanism moment that you saw Kevin Costner in for love of the game where he's standing and there's people screaming, you're, you're a bomb and you're this. And he sees the pitcher and the catcher and the batter and the ump and he, and then he says, clear the mechanism and everything goes silence. And then the distance between he and home plate just shortens because all he's got is get this ball, these, whatever it is, what this is 60 feet, 90, 75 feet, whatever to the catcher's glove. That's always got to do. And so it becomes just him and the catcher and all the extra noise goes away. So we're teaching our athletes to ground themselves in those moments to stop all of the other noise that's happening through grooving the skills to the point where they can perform those skills without having to really think through. Now I grab the ball here. Now I reach my arm back. Now I bring, now I follow through all that's gone away. It's automatic. The other side of that is, is getting them to not engage in the river of emotions that's happening, which is what Kevin Costner is doing in that moment when he's clearing the mechanism in any moment, 
there is this river of emotions that's happening within our brains. It, it, and, and depending on the moment, it could be a turbulent river after a storm where it's just flowing over the sides and it's carrying logs downstream. And we see it and we go, oh, there's fear and there's anxiety and there's, there's you know, failure. There's that fear of failure and there's even anger maybe or frustration and it's all going by. And our, as an athlete, as a, as a human being, our typical nature is to jump into that river with it and go, oh, there's fear. I'll jump in with it. And now you're being pulled downstream and drowning with the fear. It's to teach the athletes to recognize, and this is very Buddhist. I'm like you, I studied Zen Buddhism in college because I'm so fascinated by it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And it's all about emotion and brains and stability. And like you said, it's, it's not stressing about things that were out of our control. So it's a really great athlete perspective is to look at the emotion and go, there's my anxiety, but I'm not going to jump into the river with it. I'm going to observe it from the side. I'm going to name it. I'm going to recognize it happens, but I'm going to let it pass on by me. I'm not going to be a part of the anxiety. I'm just going to know it's there. So I'm not blocking it out completely because trying to suppress your emotions doesn't work either. They're going to be there. It's acknowledging them, but not allowing them to impact performance. And that's that clearing the mechanism. There goes anxiety. There goes fear. I'm going to pitch this ball now. I love, I love what you just shared, Reed. Um, dude, you and I are just, uh, we're brothers from another mother, man. This is so good to be able to have you on the show today. I just feel so thankful to know you. Um, I want to dive into this a little bit because it's, it's such a powerful way, whether an individual is an athlete or not, to be able to experience real fulfillment and satisfaction in life. Because when people jump into that emotional river, it can overtake them and make them feel overwhelmed or into a constant state of fight or flight with just normal daily activities, right? They can feel scared about the economy or scared about what might happen if they get in their car or who's the president or whatever it may be. So there's some really great ideas. Um, just to piggyback off what you share, there's a great book called Wherever You Go, There You Are. Uh, so good. And another one called The Untethered Soul. And I just to, I love what Reed just shared. And so if you guys are listening, it'd be really good to um, make sure, go follow uh, Coach Reed here. He's exceptional. But um Take notes about this idea. If, if you can imagine for a moment being in a waterfall at the very bottom, say there's a hundred foot waterfall and being in that uh, kind of mess at the bottom where the water's just crashing down on you, it'd be probably challenging to breathe and a lot of kind of turbulence. That's that can what that, that can be what happens to people emotionally when they're going through something that's challenging. But our our brains, because we're human, it's so cool. We have the ability to experience metacognition where we can actually step aside from the emotions and just observe, just notice where they're happening, what's going on. And so you could, it, you could imagine like a little cave on the back of that waterfall and being able to slip into that cave and just to observe the emotions. And that can have a very positive effect in being able to re-regulate and go, okay, I know those emotions are there, but I don't have to jump into this waterfall is this kind of like what is this what you're talking about too and if you're if you're talking about this it, it sounds like with your athletes you're trying to create this autonomy so that when they get into a situation because for me if i had 100 people watching me play golf i would feel nervous i'm definitely not a pro um and so what kind of exercises will you have them go through in order to create this this autonomy and being able to remove themselves from these potentially emotionally charged situations so the the first thing, and you, you nailed it on the head. I mean, that's what it is. It's being able, it's that metacognition. Uh, Mark Devine, who did Seal Fit, I believe, and has written some phenomenal books about his experiences in Navy SEAL, talks about the boo, right? The the background of the obvious. 
And he says, you know, trained elite forces are, are, meant, are, are taught to see beyond the boo and recognize those potential fear moments, those potential dangerous moments that just seem to be hiding in the obvious around us. It's the same thing. It's like that stepping out and recognizing our environment. Having emotions like fear and anxiety are a good thing. It's what's kept us alive for, for a very long time as humans. You know, it's, it's a survival mechanism. So you don't want to suppress it. You don't want to ignore it. You want to actually use it to heighten your awareness of a situation. And that's why I said you don't jump in with it, but you recognize it's coming. So you can step back into that cave and you can reach out and go, there's a little bit of anxiety. That's fine. I'm, I'm okay with having a little bit of that because it keeps me prepped. So with my athletes, one of the big things, especially with the young ones is, and we do with our children. Our children don't understand their emotions. So they, because they don't understand them, they sometimes can't even name what it is. They just feel these very intense emotions. And a lot of us adults do. The first thing that we teach our children is to name them, name the emotion. What is it you feel? I feel this. Well, what would you call that? That's fear. Okay. Now we've named it. Now, because we've named that emotion, we can potentially manage that emotion. And we always teach our children this. When you're angry, is it proper that you hit your brother? No. So we need to find a different way for your anger to be expressed so that it's not detrimental to you and the people. We teach our children all that type of stuff all the time, especially in positive discipline. So as an adult or as athletes, I'm teaching them the same thing. Name your emotion. Now, what's a proper way that we can use that emotion to our advantage as an athlete? So anxiety, it's good to be a little nervous. Those jitters in the stomach mean you're ready to play. And that's what we would teach them. The other piece of that is, like you said, is, is creating the autonomy, independent problem solvers. My athletes, hopefully, that's the one thing they took away was that they always had the courage to do whatever it was they wanted to do on the sports field and do it with joy. Because I was never going to punish them for making mistakes as long as they had a purpose behind the execution. The mistake might be an execution error. The mistake might be a tactical decision error, but that doesn't mean that they're a bad athlete or a bad decision maker. It just didn't work out in that moment. So why would I punish them for the outcome when I can actually help them fix the inputs that create the outcome? And so my athletes knew they played without fear. And if you look at a lot of great athletes that Lionel Messi, they play with joy. They play without that fear because there's no punishment for making a mistake. Easy one for a leader of a group of people is, we're used to making a mistake and being punished immediately. I make a mistake, coach subs me out, puts me on the bench. Well, guess what? I'm never going to take a risk again because I know if I risk, I risk making a mistake, coach is going to bench me. So there's a punishment attached to it. Now, every time I do something, I'm afraid I'm going to get yelled at. So where do I look? To the sidelines. I didn't. We didn't want our athletes to look to the sidelines. They needed to look inward. If you make a mistake, it's not on me to fix it as your coach. It's on you as the athlete. So you have to process and figure out what happened and what I, what I would do. And it's what the New Zealand All Blacks, which is one of the greatest sports teams, it's it, the greatest sports team in the history of keeping score. They have a winning percentage like near 90% over, over 100 like 15 years or something ridiculous. The reason is one of the things they do is they put them in these high pressure, high stress situations. They game out every scenario that could happen in a game so that they feel those anxiety, pressure, and all that. And then they ask them questions. What do you see? What are you thinking? How would you solve it? What would you do now? Do it. Why? Why would you do it that way? What do you, what do you think the outcome will be? What if you did it that way? You know, so they're, they're keeping their brain engaged. And so with our young athletes, the first thing we do is teach them, you're the problem solver. I want you to be an independent problem solver. You see a problem, acknowledge its existence, now solve it. Don't get problem focused, become problem aware, solution focused. Don't look to me or mom and dad on the sidelines for the answers. You have to find the answers within. It's your game. You need to solve it. In the beginning, it's very difficult because they want somebody to help solve it. So it's always asking questions. It's the Socratic method of, well, why did you do what you did? What was the outcome like? What could you do differently? What would happen if you did it that way? Go do it. 
and you're constantly giving them that kind of feedback so that they're game planning. What happens after a period of time is these athletes become self-sufficient. They're in a game and they're problem solving and a mistake happens. And instead of the brain going, and now the amygdala is in charge, the brain stays like this and they keep the frontal lobe working. They're processing, they're thinking, they're no longer panicking. So yeah, they're anxious. They've made a mistake. They're fearful. They're frustrated. They're angry. However, they're processing mentally and emotionally, and they're managing what they can manage, which is their ability to continue to think and their ability to work with the emotions without being engaged fully in them and being swept downstream. So it's it's a constant battle of letting them have enough rope that they can learn for themselves, providing some hints and tips to the answers, but letting them solve the puzzles, putting them in situations where we're pressing them in that zone of proximal development that uh, Vygotsky talks about in education where they're they're not burning out because it's too hard, but they're not bored because it's too easy. So putting them right in that zone and then peppering them with those questions to help them problem solve so that they get used to the pressure, but the brain is still activated. Man, thank you so much, Reed. This is such a uh, a great show. I hope the people that are listening are able to um, take what you're teaching here and, and utilize it to just improve their lives because it's so powerful. I'm just so grateful for you and appreciate you. you so much. Um, I want to talk about a couple other ideas related to what we've been sharing here. One one is that um, our emotions don't dictate necessarily who we are. And if we start feeling like our emotions mean something, that can scare us, right? Like, a, for example, a golfer may start to feel afraid that he's going to hit the bad ball and then he's going to associate that emotion with, that means I'm a bad golfer, right? Like this emotion or, or I'm anxious. That means that I'm, I'm bad at this because I should be calm right now. And so, and then he may start telling himself, well, don't feel anxiety, don't feel anxiety. But to your point earlier, that language then kind of creates this vicious spiral of your brain kind of just filters out. Don't. And it's like anxiety, anxiety. It's like telling somebody not to think of a, a pink elephant and don't think of it. Don't think of it. They'll think of it over and over again. Um, and so what would be your, what would be as a coach? Cause you seem like you're really good at what you do. Let's say that there was an individual that was associating the emotions that they were experiencing with a personal identity, right? Like, because I'm feeling this, it means X, Y, or Z about who I am in comparison to being able to say, that's just an emotion and I'm going to detach. Now, I love what you said about kind of the frontal lobe, because that's where the, the, an individual's lack of reasoning or being able to think through something clearly happens when they get into the bottom of the waterfall and they're just trying to, you know, get out of it. And so- um, how would you help somebody disassociate an emotion with identity? Well, you know, as we were talking about, it's it's that understanding that everybody has the emotions, that we're naming the emotions and that the emotions don't define us. And so it goes back to a kind and positive discipline we talk about all the time, kind and gentle. Like what they what a person needs in that moment is somebody that's kind and gentle. I can demand excellence from you. I don't have to demean you or humiliate you for it, which is going to heighten those emotions. If you make a mistake and I yell at you, then I'm helping you define yourself as a failure or define yourself as a fearful athlete because I helped drive that emotion. So as a coach, one, I need to manage my emotions. If if I'm calm in a moment or a leader, if I'm calm in a moment and you've made a mistake, I'm modeling for you how I want you to behave and mere behaviors are huge. If you as a leader have a really good, intense connection, a positive connection with the people you lead, They'll start to mirror your behaviors. They'll start to mirror your act actions. They'll start to mirror your belief system, your values, all of that. That is a very powerful thing. So if you have somebody that is melting and you think they're going to start defining themselves by these emotions that are attached to these outcomes, 
remove them by modeling how you should, how they should behave. So if your kids are making huge mistakes on the field as a coach, if you're running up and down the sidelines, kicking things and throwing things and screaming, you're just, you're feeding that emotional river for them and it's becoming turbulent. So if I can model, which is very difficult to do as a leader, because we're so invested in the people and we care about them. But if I can model that kind and gentle response, oops, we've made a mistake. Let's take a second. Let's solve this. And again, I'm keeping keeping them in the frontal lobe by being calm, kind, and gentle. And then there's nothing wrong from a reprogramming perspective to help athletes reframe. You're just fearful. It doesn't mean you are fear. It means you're experiencing fear at this moment. As my wife used to always joke when we were raising our kids, she said, it's the, you're, you're being a jerk. You're not a jerk mentality. It's like telling our kids you've done something. You did this. Doesn't mean you are that like you're not a jerk. You're just being a jerk right now. You know? So it's, and my son would do something and he'd go, oh, I'm a bad kid. And we, my wife would go, no, you're not a bad kid. You made a poor choice. You did something that was not a good decision. You, you made, you had a, a particular behavior that was quote unquote bad. That doesn't define you. It's the same thing with performers. You have to detach them, like you said, and tell them, yes, that is a moment of fear, but you are not a fearful athlete. You're experiencing the fear because this happened. So we've named it. Now you ask them, how can, how can I get around this fear? How can you use this fear? Nobody ever asks people, how can you use your emotions? And it's a huge one. If somebody's struggling with something and they're starting to define it, you ask them, okay, it's a superpower. How can you use it to your advantage? Right now, the superpower is out of control and you can't control it at all. And so you're burning buildings with your eyes because you're not able to, you're going to have to wear those dark glasses like the guy does because he can't control the lasers coming out of his eyes. But at some point in time, he gets good enough to control them. So what is that emotion you're feeling? It isn't defining you. It's a superpower. It helps you perform better. Now, how can we use that emotion to help you perform better? Some athletes will say, like uh, Kevin Durant, coach, I need to yell at me in that moment. I need to say, get your head in the game, Kevin. And that's what works for him. Other athletes will say, coach, I just need you to tell me to hit a reset button. Like, give me a moment, pull me out, give me a second. Let me collect my thoughts. I'll do it. Other athletes, it's a trigger. A lot of times we worked with athletes and we just had trigger words like next. Uh, I learned that from my buddy, Andy Zooks. An athlete would make a mistake. The emotions are starting to well up. They're defining themselves in that moment. They have defined their career by one single mistake in a game. And they're standing there sinking in the quicksand of self-doubt. His word was next. That's okay. Get it on the next shot. That's okay. We'll score the next goal next time. That's okay. You'll, you'll, you'll fix it on the next pass. So what you're doing is you're moving them emotionally beyond that moment to the next moment, to more possibility down the road. And that way they're not being defined by what just happened. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. A couple other ideas here. This has been one of my favorite podcasts uh, so far. I think it's, it's just uh, it's such a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the way that we are subconsciously programmed based off of the way that our brains function at different ages, right? So you may be working with an individual that was programmed a particular way through language that was taught to him or her as a young boy or girl, and some of that needs to be outrooted, right? So they've they've proven like from ages six or zero to six or seven, our brains are operating at a lower uh, or higher I, I, theta, right? In that state where we are um, in a state of high suggestion. So what we what a parent talks about with their child at that point, like for example, hey, Santa Claus is going to be here. The child's like, yeah, of course, like Santa's real. They just take it as truth. They just know it. Um, like you are a good kid. You're smart, right? You are, you're going to be successful. That kid will take that. Yeah, I am smart. I am successful. Or if we say that you are bad, right? You did something wrong. They will believe that and and internalize that. And we see kind of the effects of 
linguistic programming from a parent and a child as they grow older through their education. And some, some people are more resilient to failure because of the way they were programmed. It's like, oh, that's okay. I'm a good kid and I can overcome challenges. That's what I was taught when I was young. And you've probably worked with athletes on both sides, right? Where they were programmed correctly. Like, Hey, I failed. That's okay. I can overcome challenges. And ones that think I failed. That means again, going back to this association, like I'm a bad athlete now. And so how, how would you as a coach also work on, um, there's of course the autonomy that we work on, uh, that you can help them with, but how would you take out a wrong program from the software, something that had been there for years and years, um, a very heavy connection in their brain or a deep system and reprogram it correctly. How would you help with something like that? I've had athletes like that before. I'm, I was one of those athletes. I had great programming growing up. I had phenomenal parents, but my own voice became so powerful and it was such a negative person. And you're right. We, we have to be very careful about how we speak to children because our voice becomes theirs, especially like you said, at the, the high theta ages where they are very influenced that the way we speak and we see it in uh, uh, certain behavioral patterns in children. If, if I'm a parent and I'm constantly complaining about a certain politician or complaining about a certain, but we'll see the kids grow up and they suddenly dislike that too. And you have no idea. Why, like, why, why do you dislike Democrats? You, you, you don't even know what they're about, but, but that's because they were programmed by the language that they grew up in a household. And I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing out an example, you know, but so we have to be careful because our voice becomes their voice. When you get those kids to the point where that voice is now an ingrained natural part of their life, one of the best things you can do is disrupt. They're not used to something that, this, so it's a pattern, right? And the human brain is used to patterns. The human brain is comfortable with patterns. The human brain seeks out patterns and structure. One of the best things I can do as a coach is disrupt that. So if I've got an athlete who was needs the validation and who does live in that fearful state and who does have that negative voice, and I've had him before, the first couple of times that they look to me, I will say something that catches them off guard. You know, I had one and he would make, he, every time he did something, it didn't matter whether it was good or bad, his mom warned me, he'll look to you. He needs that validation. He's had it ingrained by other coaches that he's either going to get yelled at or he's going to get praised when he does things. And so he's now playing with that mindset and we need to fix that. It's no problem. First time he looked at me, I went, what are you looking at me for? You're the one playing the game. And he went, and he went about his business, you know? And then the next time I, again, I disrupted, he looked at me and I was like, yeah. And he was waiting for me to say something. Instead, I gave him a thumbs up and he was like, what, what's, what's wrong with coach? And so I'm getting him out of that pattern with a disruption behavior. Then it's the opportunity to layer in the new language as I'm training with him. And you're actually doing a brilliant job in this podcast. You have made very kind and loving comments towards me like, Oh, read is this. And my demeanor is changing every time you say those things. Cause I'm like, yeah, because I started the podcast with imposter syndrome because we all have it. I don't feel the imposter syndrome now by the way you're speaking. So if you're able to do that to me, imagine what we can do with a more influential younger athlete or younger performer if we just start saying things and it's not being the, you know, Hercules, Hercules, you're so good at everything. It's not that mentality. If you remember the movie yes, sir, yeah. <laughs> with Eddie Murray, Hercules, um, it's not praising them for everything they do. It's encouraging those behaviors that are positive and it's not the outcome. So I start with an athlete like that. I would say to him, instead of great goal, because he's used to hearing that or bad shot, I would say, man, you worked really hard to be in the right spot at the right time. That was a heck of a run. And because of it, you got a goal. What I just did is I encouraged the behavior. He knows what, exactly what he did to become a goal, great goal scorer so he can repeat it. It's easy to repeat. It's a repeatable opportunity and it's practical. Make the run, be in the right spot at the right time. 
So now he's not looking for, to me for validation anymore. He knows exactly what he did to get it. So I disrupted the pattern by not giving him the validation or the praise at first. And then I started layering in different language so that he had a different uh, experience when he did things. And when he did something wrong, instead of screaming at him, which supported that original pattern, I, he does something wrong. I might do a thumbs up or next or something like that, which catches him off guard. He's like, why is coach saying next? Why isn't he yelling at me for making a mistake? Then when I get a chance, I would say to him, what do you think happened? Oh, nobody's ever asked. Nobody's ever asked me what I thought. Well, I did this coach. Okay. What could you do differently? Oh, I could, I could do this coach. Great. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put you back in. Do it. See what happens. What's the worst that can happen? I'm not going to yell at you. So go do it. Now I've implanted a completely different voice in this athlete because I disrupted the original pattern and I layered in a completely different way of speaking to the athlete. And I'm teaching him how to speak to himself because I'm asking him questions, which means he has to answer them, which means his brain is activating its own logical work through its own logical process. He'll start asking himself the questions down the road. And that's where uh, another example uh, my, my, one of my mentors in my under in my first graduate degree in, in sport performance, Robin Veely, she said that she had a, a young nephew who couldn't swim yet. And they were at a party and they were all sitting around. They were all watching him very closely, but he walked over the pool and somebody said, mm, 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 and he jumped in, he can't swim. So she says, I jump up and I run over as so I'm running over. I say, nobody say a word. Cause she's a sports psychologist. Nobody say a word. And she jumps in, she grabs him, she scoops him up and she goes, she blows in his face so he can clear his face. And she goes, Whoa, you jumped in the water all by yourself. Did you have fun? Can you swim? Will you do that again by yourself? Will you go in with me? Okay. We're going to learn to swim together. What she did was the normal reaction is, oh my gosh, you could have died. That was the worst moment ever. And as she mentioned, what you've just done is you've created a trauma. That kid will always be afraid of water because you had to save their life and they almost died. Or as she flipped it, she changed the script for the kid and said, wow, that was brave. However, you're not prepared for that yet. We need to be prepared, right? Yes. Yeah, so now he's weary of the water, but he wants to learn to be in it. Same thing with athletes. When they make mistakes, if you go, you idiot, you did it again. Well, you're just enforcing those emotions. Disrupt it and say something different to them. Oh, oops, bummer, unlucky. That didn't work. Why not? Well, what can I do to help you so that it works next time? And we've changed that dialogue. Man, that is so cool. That, that is so cool. Um, what I love so much about what you're sharing and uh all of the work that you've put into this research, right? You've, you've done a ton of work into becoming who you are. And so it's really kind of you to be here and to share with us, um, all these important insights, but you're, uh, you're highly intelligent outside of just linguistics and language, but also just the way that the brain works, right. And being able to accomplish a particular objective. I want to ask you really quick, because one of the things we'll go back to just some of these Buddhist ideas for a second that I think is, it's fascinating. And then we'll talk about one other topic outside of this, and then we'll be we'll probably be done. But uh, I'm just loving this conversation so much. Um, linguistics, we know, plays a, a major role in outcomes, but there's more to it than just language, right? And so one of the things that I think is interesting about the Buddhist kind of this, this culture is the ashram, this place where these these individuals are learning to become monks, they're, or, or just from young, from, from young kids, they'll learn how to breathe at age five, right? They'll learn how important breathing is. Um, and they'll have like, it was, I was reading a book recently and there was like an eight-year-old teaching the five-year-olds how to breathe. And I'm like, yo, why didn't I learn that in kindergarten? 
right? Because when I get scared and I feel anxious or afraid, my breathing quickens. I start to think irrationally. I get scared. I, I dysregulate, right? My emotions. Um, and just studying breath and how it works, it allows you very quickly to kind of reconnect and ground yourself to the things that matter. Same with sports, right? If I'm going to tee up, it, it, it will help me a lot if I can just breathe, right? And get into a good state. And so um, it's just an interesting thing. What What other methodologies would you pair with linguistics in order to have like optimized performance in mindset? Um outside of just like the language that we're using uh routines routines help a ton so you'll Probably see the autonomy too right? yeah with the yeah exactly so you're in the routines are great my son has it he plays volleyball and before every service does the exact same thing watch a free throw shooter they'll do the exact same thing most batters have a walk-up routine good great golfers typically have a pre-shot routine the waggles uh i try to remember the golfer it's a pro golfer and he's one of the ones that stands over the ball forever and waggles like 15 times and people's like people are like just hit the ball but that's his routine and those those waggles or wiggles that he's doing he's actually blowing out any negative emotions any negative thoughts he's grooving into a routine what you're doing is you're putting that brain in that rhythm that routine it's preparing it it's that go time mentality with with a soccer team i used to coach their, their favorite ter term was seek joy. So every, every pregame started with them right before they stepped off, stepping across the line was the physical trigger button for them. Right before they stepped across the line, I'd say, seek joy, go out there and seek joy today or whatever. And they would step across that line and they were ready. It was game mode. Like we taught them that the white line on the edge of the field, the chalk line was the barrier that they crossed. And when they crossed that barrier, they had to be somebody different. They had to have their game face on. They had to be, if you read, uh, uh, Daniel Abrams, Abrams work, um, you know, the game face mentality. So that's huge is having a pre-shot routine, having those kinds of resets and triggers for athletes. Uh, another way to, another thing that, that helps, like you were talking about is really grooving the skill, creating confidence, competence, not just confidence, competence, you know, confidence is a feeling competence is actually a behavior. So if I've worked on a skill enough and I've done it enough times and I've done it with, this is the big key. We can't take shortcuts. It's not about getting the skill complete. And too many times when we talk about intentional training, it's, oh, I get my 10,000 hours in. If you're sloppy in those 10,000 hours on the actual skills themselves, you're not actually grooving the skill properly. It needs to be done properly. So it's it's the Steph Curry, get it right. He doesn't leave the gym until it's 10 swish free throws in a row. Not because he's just that you know, like that OCD, but because that means he's grooved the skill to be able to do it 10 straight times, it's proper training. Then he leaves. You don't have to be that intense about it, but doing skills properly. So you feel that competence, you have confidence and you have that competent behavior. You know, that when you step up to the tee box, you've done a hundred of these in the driving range, you've put them in the game context and you're going to be fine. That's the other one. Performers need to do things in context. If I'm training against cones and grooving a particular skill cones don't behave like defenders do in games i need to do these skills in situations where i'm going to be in context it's state dependent learning so if i'm learning in small-sided play against other athletes who i can't control their behaviors then i get very competent at being able to interact and react and respond to the environment around me. So when I step into a actual game mode, I've done it enough times in context that I, I'm, I, I have no problem with state dependent transfer. I've, I've trained and practiced like I've played. 
Another one is the scenarios piece. I don't even need to use language for it, but we're just going to run you through every potential scenario. It's what flight, it's what flight simulators are. The reason why pilots, I was on a plane one time where a pilot landed a plane that I didn't know if we were going to actually land it. And then she landed it so smoothly, we didn't even feel a bump. And yet we're in wind shear that's causing me to look out the window and see ground, sky, ground, sky, ground, skies were coming in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to clip this runway. Like it, the wind was so bad. And yet somebody, when we finally landed, somebody goes, did we land? Are we down? I didn't even feel the touchdown. She did it so smoothly. I overheard her in the concourse make a comment as we were all, you know, we'd gotten off the plane and we're standing that, thank goodness we do this in flight simulators. Like game planning through every possible scenario so that you, nothing you face is emotionally affronting to you, helps you remain calm during the actual performance itself. It's what the New Zealand All Blacks, as I mentioned earlier, discovered. They would put them into every scenario possible, like a flight simulator, and then they would work through them. The All Blacks, after doing that kind of exercise, reported that they never faced anything in games that they hadn't already solved in training. You have a very well-prepared performer if they get into a game situation and they go, oh, this is easy. I've seen this before. It's what elite forces do. They will build to the scale inch the exact building they're going to breach and they will game plan it and game plan it and game plan it and game plan it so that there is a level of optimicity and confidence and competence and they've run every scenario possible. So the brain doesn't freak out because it sees something it's never seen before. And you can do all that without language. It's remarkable, isn't it? What we can do. I think it's amazing. This is a perfect segue to our last topic, and then we'll be we'll be out of here. I just want to express my just deep gratitude to have Reed on the show today. It's been truly such a wonderful gift to have him here. Thankful now to have a new friend. Uh, he's just as good as they come, and uh, the research that he's done and the type of individual he is is, I mean, it's exceptional. And so he's got this great book called The Spartan Mindset. Go pick it up, read it. Um, this guy knows his stuff. It's really really cool. I want to talk about an individual that most people, I'd say, or, or at least a, a good amount of people know about, but uh, maybe the psychology behind what he did. Roger Bannister um, was a, an amazing man. Um, and w let's talk about kind of from your approach, what you might have, uh, if you were to diagnose how he did what he did, um, we'll talk about it. To, to, to those that don't know who Roger Bannister was in uh, for years and years and years and years, People said, including scientists, they said it is impossible for the human body to run faster than a four-minute mile. Impossible. Can't be done. Um, just like what what uh, Rita talked about earlier, that word is so powerful. They were saying it can't, right? You can't run faster than four minutes. Re or not, not Re, excuse me, Roger uh, Bannister had a unique way of thinking where he just knew it could be done. Um, so somehow, some way, his brain was programmed differently than every other runner's. And he didn't care what science said. He didn't care about what anybody else said. He says, I'm going to do it. Uh, the year was 1954. And it was actually a really, the, the weather was adverse on the day that he broke the record. It wasn't ideal conditions. And he ran the um, the mile in uh, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. So just almost half of a second, less than four minutes. And um, it was, I mean, it was like miraculous for, for people to understand. What was fascinating about this experience is that Almost immediately after Roger Bannister broke the record, um, a lot of people did, right? They followed suit going, well, I can too, right? And so maybe um, what I'll have uh, 
Reed do is just explain maybe why that was the case, how this could have happened in athletic performance, how for years this could have been like, this is impossible. Um, and all of a sudden it happens and then everybody follows suit. Uh, so what role would you say mindset played in all of this, Reed? I, I have to believe that it was the largest role, was the most important role. And we're seeing it again, the evolution of the athlete today, the evolution of performers today, they're doing things, they're running, you know, sub 40s and they're, you know, now you've got guys that are borderline 250, 275, and they're running in the 4.0 range in 40s. And you're like, what in the world? How in a human being that big get that? Because at some point in time, somebody said, this is fully possible. It was a growth mindset. It's that Carol Dweck growth mindset. Like I can train this and growth mindset. The, the misconception is I can just say, oh, I can run a four minute mile and believe in it. No, you all you have to back it up with the activity. You have to believe in it and you have to believe in it. And this is where I think Roger came in. Everybody talks about genetics when it came down to that. Human is not capable of running. It's physically impossible for a human to run under four minutes. Roger Bannister had a growth mind that, mindset that said, well, here's the thing. We weren't all born with this barrier that said we can only run four minutes or, you know, four minute miles and no, no faster. There's an ability for me. My skill is not fixed at birth. My skill is trainable. So if I train hard enough, if I train under the right conditions, if I train in ways that, that alter, and, and I have to believe that Roger was geeky about this. What's my banter? What's my steps look like? What does my gallop look like? What does my gait look like? You know, how am I breathing? How am I training my breathing? How are my sleep patterns? Like that's where we've really seen growth is that people say breaking a four minute mile is impossible. It's impossible the way you're currently training. It's not impossible if I train differently, if I look at different factors. And so I have to believe that's one of the things that Roger Bannister did was he said, okay, well, Let's let's step outside the box and let's train a different way. The other one is he truly believed that it wasn't a fixed innate thing. Like this is something I can work on. This is something I can train. And then like you mentioned, the beautiful effect of that was like a confirmation bias. It was like a Bader-Meinhof sort of thing where it's like Bader-Meinhof, you know, you, I, I love Jeeps. And when I, when I bought my first Jeep, I started seeing Jeeps everywhere. And I was like, man, everybody owns a Jeep. And then I suddenly dawned on, and I, I looked it up. I had to know, why do I keep seeing Jeeps everywhere? And if you look it up, it's the Bader-Meinhof syndrome. It's the idea that they've always existed, but now your brain is keyed into seeing it. So your brain looks for it as a confirmation bias. It wants to find more Jeeps. The moment a human being broke the four-minute barrier, something everybody said couldn't be done, other human beings suddenly saw the opportunity because in their brains, it became a reality. It became concrete. It became something accomplishable. And we saw it with John F. Kennedy telling us we're going to put a person on the moon. And everybody's like, uh, we just started putting people in the air for an extended period of time just 50 years ago. And now you want to what in the next decade? You want to what? We did it within what, four or five years or what? <laughs> because we put the resources behind it. We made people believe it could happen. We gave them something to visualize by some training missions with rockets and stuff like that, where it was like, this is fully possible. And we put the best minds in the world and resources behind it. Roger Bannister had to have done the same thing. It's doable. I can do it. I'm going to train differently. I'm going to put all my resources behind this. And the moment he did it, other people went, I can do it too. So mindset plays a huge role. It's just, we have to back it up with the activity behind it man yeah, absolutely right this is so it's so important for everybody listening i just think human beings are the best i i wish 
I, I look, I have the opportunity with what I do for work to watch people just excel and grow and develop. And I, I teach people how to start their own companies and it is the most fun. Um, I love my job because w w people have incredible potential. They can do things they never would have dreamed of by just thinking about them differently. And I think that is the, it, it is such a genuinely um, rewarding experience to watch somebody's light bulb turn on and go, wait a minute, like I am, I, I can do amazing things, right? It's a, it's a really powerful experience. Um, uh, it makes me a bit, it's, it's cool to see, right. Being able to yeah. see that it's really, really cool. Have um, you ever seen, sorry, let me jump in real quick. Have you ever please. seen the video of the skateboarder who's, he's trying to trick and he does it like 40 times and it's an old video, but it's, he's trying to jump across of like a sewer or something and he keeps messing up. And every time he messes up, he falls down and he's skinning his hands and his arms and everything. And every time he jumps up, he grabs his board and goes again. And he does it again, again, it does it again. And like the 41st time, each time he's going, I, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. And you can see him like every time he doesn't, he gets frustrated, but he never buys into it to complete anger or failure. And on like the 41st time he does it and he's so close to landing it and he falls at the last second and he gets up and he grabs his board and he looks at the camera and he goes, I got it. I solved it. It's in there. I got it. I can do it. The very next time he does it. That's how our lives are. Like that's the Roger Bannister. Like not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. But each time. I'm learning something new because I'm giving myself feedback and I'm self-aware and I'm, I'm pulling from each time the data that I need that helps me finally complete the task to perfection. And that is the best way. Carol, the book that Reed is uh, referencing is one I would highly recommend. It's entitled Mindset by Carol Dweck. She talks a lot about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And a fixed mindset would say, oh, no, I failed five times. I'm just not that kind of person that can do something like this. Maybe somebody else was genetically coded to be able to do these things, and I can't. Again, that word, I can't do this. Um, a growth mindset is, I'm just going to figure it out. Um, no matter what, if I stay curious and I'm willing to learn, there is going to be a way to figure this out. Um, and that's like a child learning how to walk. They'll they'll fall 60 plus times within an hour as they learn how to walk. And the world is filled with people that know how to walk and run everybody learns how because they're not programmed at a young age to believe that failure is bad it's just i just need to keep trying until i get it um in in leaving here we won't spend time on this because we're oh i might need to have a read back on the show um at some point because this has just been such a positive conversation but i would encourage individuals on the show to study epigenetics as well because there's some interesting things that go on genetically in our codes and programming where in the, if if, the, if we choose to think a particular way our genetic code can actually manifest itself differently, um, which is remarkable. They've proven it biologically. So the genes that you you have can actually behave differently based off of the thought patterns that you have. It's it's absolutely incredible. Um, so go study epigenetics. Uh, really, really cool. Also to Reed's point as well, as we finish up here, 10,000 hours of practice, like Malcolm Gladwell's idea here, it needs, it needs to be practice that is perfect practice or practice that's intentional, like a basketball player that knows how to dribble with his right hand really, really well. If he does that for 10,000 hours, it's not going to help him improve. He needs to move the ball over to his left hand and practice that. It's going to feel uncomfortable and there's going to be new grooves that are created. But that practice will get will increase his game, right? Which is super, super cool. Um, and then another thing for listeners to go study, right? If you're, if you're into any of this stuff, there's some really crazy uh, research behind things that go on on a subatomic level with uh, 
quantum physics and quantum mechanics. So go study some of that stuff too. Um, we we could talk another four or five hours about some of that, but uh, go study it. It's really, really cool. I just want to say uh, to read again, man, thank you, brother, for being here. This has been so fun to have you. And I'm grateful um, again for what you shared, but also to have a wonderful new friend. You're you're awesome. Uh, I've loved the conversation. I'm, I'm so happy we connected and I can't wait to have more conversations. I will say one quick thing. Please, please do. Practice. Yes. And it's okay if your practice is ugly at first. Karch Karai, who's a very famous volleyball player, coaches uh, the Olympic uh, USA women's volleyball team now, talks about ugly practices. And and uh, uh, Trevor Reagan, I think, is uh, uh, train ugly. That it's okay for your practice to look ugly in the beginning because that's where you're sorting through all the mistakes and making all the mistakes and, and, and ironing them out like that skateboarder. That perfect practice is when you're intentionally fixing along the way so that you don't leave the gym until you've accomplished that skill to a level of competency where you feel comfortable with it. That's where that's the idea that 10,000 hours is that I get to 10,000 hours where I'm practicing the skill at a very high level of success rate after having had a ton of ugly training up to that moment. I love this. Yeah. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. That's so, so good. <laughs> I love that. Thank you, Reed. I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of your week, brother, and look forward to connecting again soon. Thank you. Most definitely. Thank you so much. 